And uh, it was a real conversion. It was a process that God brought me through. Uh, but for many decades, I realized somewhere around 10 years ago, I'm losing track, God showed me that I had not been really leading a surrendered life. Can we just put the first slide up there? Good. Thank you. I had really not been leading a surrendered life. And God showed me that, that I had been leading life with my own wisdom, uh, on my own strengths, with my own agenda. And to be perfectly frank, it wasn't working out all that well. There was a lot of ups and downs and a lot of regrets in all of that. But as I mentioned, starting just about 10 years ago, uh, the Lord started to reveal that to me and shift me into this posture of surrender, leading a surrendered life. It's the beginning of a real renaissance in my spiritual life. I now look back on that and think, boy, I was born again, again. And, uh, and that was very profound transition. And as part of that, thinking about surrender, um, dwelling on some of the things I found in Scripture, I started to really uh, explore. I started to look for this concept of humility found in Jesus in Matthew here when he says, take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Well, what did that really mean? I started to get the sense and think about, or maybe that God revealed, that humility was something really essential. I began to think of it almost as kind of a litmus test. I know that they'll know us by our love, but there's something about uh, God's presence in someone's life that should reveal something like that. And I, and I started to look and ponder, what does that really mean? Well, a couple of years ago, maybe a year ago, uh, a friend of mine introduced me to my new best friend. If you've talked to me for maybe 30 seconds in the church, you might have heard me mention this guy's name. He gave me this devotional book by this pastor from the 19th century. He was a Dutch Reformed minister. And uh, if we've talked at all, I, I might have mentioned it because this guy really scratches my itch. Um, he had the time, took the time to know the Lord and had some very profound insights. And since I was looking for that sense of intimacy at this time, this is the latest installment in my own personal lesson plan that God was cultivating me through. And it turns out that the pastor is a very prolific writer. He wrote a lot of great books. And, uh, but I was delighted and maybe a little convicted to find out that he wrote one, wrote one entirely on humility. I don't know anybody who wrote a book, and it's not a long one, but boy, is it rich, on just the subject of humility. So I was thrilled. I was looking, say, I want to learn more about this. I'm looking for this around me in the church. I'm looking for people to show me what this means, what Christ meant by being meek and humble in heart. So here I find this guy, uh, and I start reading uh, this very convicting book on a subject of interest. And I'm going to unpack, I'm going to expose you to one of the quotes uh, from Pastor Murray at the beginning of this book, and then we'll unpack the, what the scripture says about it. So let me pull this up. I know you can't read it like this, but I wanted to show it to you in context. It's all one uh, quote near the beginning of the book. I'm going to break this out piece by piece so we can unpack it a little bit. So, the life of the saints, he says, must bear this stamp. It must be marked by an all-pervading humility. And then he says, without this, 
there can be no true abiding in God's presence or experience of his favor or the power of his spirit, faith, love, joy, strength. None of that can be experienced without this all-pervading humility that's the stamp of his saints, which is all of us, all the believers in Christ. Wow, that's a really, that's a really bold statement. Then he goes on to say that humility is the soil in which the grace is root. And the lack of it is sufficient to explain every defect and deficiency. Presumably, he means that in our character, our spiritual life, our, our holiness, our sanctification. Wow, the lack of humility. Wow, I better learn what this is because if I'm lacking it, um, experiencing God won't be the same. And then he goes on to say, it's not so much a grace or a virtue like the others. It's not like the other fruits of the Spirit, goodness, self-control, gentleness, peace. This is something more fundamental. This is the soil in which the other graces take root. Uh, He says, and because it alone takes the right attitude before God, allows God to be God and us to be us. The Holy One is the creator. We are the clay. He is the potter, right? And humility allows us to take that right posture with respect to God. Really powerful set of statements about this subject. Do I need to go through? you want to go through it again? Get it? Okay. The, the saints are marked by an all-pervading humility. And without it, we can't truly experience God, essentially communion with God. And humility is the soil in which the grace is root and is sufficient. Lack of it is sufficient to explain a lot of our problems in daily life. I know that's true of me, as I will show you. And grace is not just a virtue. It's not just another, like, a fruit of the Spirit. But it's fundamental because it, it helps us to see ourselves in right relationship to our Creator, the Holy One, the Divine Majesty. We'll touch on this theme later. Okay? That's a lot. That's a lot. Wow. I'm going to unpack this now. I'm going to go through some of the Scripture. And as much as I can in the next hour and a half, we're going to... <laughs> We're going to, I'm just kidding, just kidding. Stay with me. We're going to go through what some of the Scripture says about this and what some of, the, some of the writers of the Scripture say about this. Okay? So the first thing I notice when I start to study this is that this is just part of the Hebrew mindset. Humility, the concept of being humble, is, pervades the Hebrew culture. God has been showing them this for years. And you see it right here first in this song of Mary. Everybody remember when she learns she's going to be pregnant with the Christ? She prays this prayer. She has this called Mary's Song. And it's really uh, remarkable because here's this 15 or 16-year-old Jewish girl, Hebrew girl. They didn't go to rabbinical school, the girls did in those days. But she's so, so devout, perhaps, and her family's um, inculcated with the scripture and the Hebrew mindset that the sense of humility pervades her song. Right? Look what she says. You've been mindful of the humble state of your servant. You've scattered the proud in their inmost thoughts. We're going to juxtapose pride with humility, as you'll see. You bring down rulers from their thrones, but you lift up the humble. So this is right here in Mary's song, this humble Jewish girl, these recurring themes in her prayer. And it's no wonder, because one can bet her parents were constantly quoting the scripture and quoting 
the Proverbs. So this guy right here looks like a humble guy, but it's just a simple, you know, Google on Bible Gateway of Humility just starts to bring you more scripture than you can even read. So here it is, right out of the Proverbs. Pride leads to disgrace, but humility comes with wisdom. Wisdom is often found in the company of humility. Proverbs 11, wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Humility comes before honor, another connection they make here in Proverbs 15. Before a, a downfall, the heart is haughty, or pride. Haughty is a word for being extremely prideful, but humility comes before honor, Proverbs 18. Humility is the fear of the Lord, again, and its wages are riches and honor and life, Proverbs 22. And uh, my personal favorite, the Lord sustains the humble, but casts the wicked or the prideful to the ground. We'll see that theme again. This is just scratching the surface. These themes about humility before our creator. It's in Job. I am the potter and you are the clay. How can you stand up to me? I am the Lord, your God. It's almost intrinsic to the Hebrew God, and he's been demonstrating to this, uh, this theme for, for, for centuries, right? Generations, they've been learning these lessons, and Mary gets it. So, moving to the New Testament, Peter and James, the bedrock of the church, those good Jewish boys, they've learned this, they've learned this as well, right? The theme gets picked up in the New Testament. Peter and James are citing it. Humility, act in humility with one another. Because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble, I think they're channeling or paraphrasing Psalm 147. And then James picks up the theme as well. Who's wise and understanding? Show it by a good life. Deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. Right from the Proverbs. James has captured some of the themes in Proverbs. Peter, again, oh sorry, James in James 4, he goes on to say, God opposes the proud but gives favor to the humble. Uh, Psalm 147 again. Peter and James were working together in Jerusalem. I think they compared notes, right? So they're paraphrasing the same thing. But here it is, foundational to the church. These apostles are, are amplifying these themes about humility. But it gets even deeper than that. Let's talk about uh, now what Jesus says about this. What did Jesus teach? So I'm trying again, remember... This passage for me has been very instrumental. I'm trying to understand what does he mean by learning from me in humility. He's not just saying, come to me. He's saying, learn from me. He also says elsewhere, abide in me, but that's a whole other discussion. So if we move on to what Jesus actually said, this is perhaps one of the most famous uh, passages, parables, that juxtaposes humility. Okay? Everybody's familiar with this, right? The two men go into the temple. One's a Pharisee, and one's a tax collector. And the Pharisee uh, prays, God, thank you, I'm not like other people. Compares himself to robbers, evildoers, adulterers, oh my goodness. Or even like this tax collector. Every time I read the scripture, I think, oh my gosh, thank goodness I'm not as proud as this Pharisee. You see what I did there? What did I do? Pride. And how did that pride manifest itself? I compared. I compared myself to other people. It was as natural as eating, breathing. I just compared. And uh, 
the lower those people are that I can compare myself to, the easier it is to make myself feel better about myself. And notice I didn't compare myself to the tax collector. Right? That would have been harder. I would have looked bad. Right? Can't have that. But the tax collector looks at it fundamentally different. I think Jesus is giving us two different models. In the way that Jesus does, Jesus takes Old Testament scripture and then amplifies them, brings them deeper, wider. You know, he reveals more of himself and God than the Old Testament psalmist could ever do. And he does it here. So I was trying to think of a model for this. What did he really do here? Well, I think he presents two models of a way to look at this. And the one that we can call this horizontal model, right? It's when I compare myself to somebody else. If I can put them down, I feel lifted up, right? It's the easiest thing in the world to do. And can we be honest? We all do it, right? It's easy. In traffic, I put people down all the time. Look at that. Can you believe that? What a bonehead, right? I feel better about my driving, which Lorna assures me is terrible, okay? Right? Well, if it's the truth, it's the truth. All right. Can't take the Boston out of the boy. But I think there's another model that Jesus juxtaposes here, doesn't he? When he talks about the tax collector. Who did the tax collector compare himself against? Himself in the presence of a holy God, the divine majesty. He doesn't even dare look up. He's in the temple in the presence of this divine majesty. And I try to find, okay, what's an image for that? And I came up with this one. Um, does everybody know what this is? Yeah. Well, some of the young people might never have even seen this. But, so this is a thermometer. It's this little red fluid. is in a tube of glass. And when the temperature goes up, it, yeah, and you have to read it off the scale. There's no numbers. It's all kind of in there. Well, this is kind of an absolute scale. This is kind of a vertical model for how we see ourselves with respect to Almighty God. This is the tax collector model, right? And notice that it's also a continuum. You know, you're proud, or you're humble, or you're someplace in between, right? You're someplace on that continuum. On a daily basis, any given time of day, to the extent that I'm not humble, I'm prideful, right? It's not just comparing myself to adulterers and murderers and people in traffic, whatever, right? And that's what the tax collector does. He, he prostrates himself before the image of the Holy One of Israel. So, does that model kind of work? Kind of works. I like to have images to go with the text. Kind of sticks in your mind. I'll refer to it again as we go through this. So, the justification. And remember I said how Jesus takes everything now to a whole new level. Where Peter and James were saying, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Well, look what Jesus says here. Not only is the tax collector goes home justified before Almighty God, but he says, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those that humble themselves will be exalted. This takes it just a little bit, it's a little bit more definitive from Psalm 147, isn't it? How Peter and James uh, paraphrased it. Much sharper point to this. Now, how did Jesus get there? This is, this is what he's posing as 
uh, humility. And Paul expands on this theme. This famous passage from Philippians 2. Is everyone familiar with this? It's great, really illuminating passage. I think you can't reflect on it enough. Where he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but looking to others. So this is, this is kind of a positive spin on that horizontal model, but instead Paul is saying, look, instead of putting others down to try to lift yourself up, become the servant to lift others up. Humble yourself to lift others. So he flips this on its side. It's still that horizontal model, but he's taking a, a spin. So he's moved the whole discussion of humility. You know, he's picked the football up, taken it about five yards down the field with this. It's a positive spin in that horizontal model. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He continues in this vein. And I'm going to read this word for word because I think the context is so important. And uh, what he has to say about it. it says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Exclamation point. Even death on a cross. So now Jesus has taken this vertical model. Come on. To a whole new plane. He's taken this as about as far as it can be taken, hasn't he? And how did he get there? So his testimony about himself. His testimony about himself. He tells us how he got there. He tells us what this means. I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing of himself. He can only do what the Father is seeing, John 5. By myself I can do nothing. I I judge only as I hear, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. John 5 again. For I come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me, John 6. The one who sent me is with me, for I always do what pleases him, John 8. I am not seeking glory for myself, John 8. The words I say to you are not just my own, rather it is a father living in me who is doing his work, John 14. Learn from me, for I am humble, meek and humble in heart. I think he's showing us what that means. Showing us how he uh, approached. How did he put aside his godhood, become humble in appearance as a man? Right? He's taking this concept of humility to a, a whole new level. He's a man without a... There is no personal ambition. There's no selfish ambition or vain conceit to be found in this man by his own words and by his own actions. There's nothing I can add to this. There's nothing I can add to it. Sorry to be so sobering. This is my only chance to really 
you know, to get something like this out there. You know, there are Christians in other parts of the world that have the opportunity to practice this kind of humility, you know. All right. Lighten it back up a little bit. Okay, still with me? So around this, this time of this renaissance in my own personal spiritual life, we were living in North Carolina, and uh, a good friend of mine was part of this Christian businessmen's group, and he said, you've got to get involved with us, come. You know, and they invited me to this leadership retreat, and they were big on leadership. We talked about leadership a lot. Um, and we're at this retreat, and there's maybe a dozen guys sitting around in a circle, business guys, you know, various strata in life. And they said, what does leadership mean to you? Who's a good example of leadership in the Bible? And I think they were looking for answers like, you know, Joshua, sound the trumpets. Or maybe like Moses, you know, Charlton Heston, let my people go. You know, they were looking for that sort of thing. <laughs> but I looked at them and I said, you know, I really admire John the Baptist. And they looked at me like I had three heads. John the Baptist, why? as leadership. Well, Jesus said he was greater than anyone else born of women. He was greater than anyone else. Why is that? Why was John the Baptist? Why am I so fascinated with John the Baptist? Well, let's look. Jesus is baptized by John. And he said, I'm not worthy to untie your sandals. Uh, but then the next day when he, when he goes by and he says, look, the Lamb of God. And two of his disciples turn around and say, Rabbi, where are you going? He says, come and you will see. Talk about poaching sheep, right? Can you imagine John's reaction? Can you imagine it? Hey, Nathaniel, Andrew, where are you guys going? I thought I was your rabbi. Oi. Is that how, we, is that how it went down, you think? No. Cut it out, Ed. No, this is what he said. It's remarkable. The bridegroom has come. I'm full of joy. My joy is complete. Because I prepared the way for the bridegroom, and he has come. He must become greater. I must become lesser. He must increase. I must decrease. That's remarkable. Now, when you wake up in the morning... You open your eyes before your feet even hit the floor. Your waking prayer is, Lord, thank you for another day to live and serve you. Help me to lose a little bit more of myself today in order to gain more of you. Help me to decrease so you can increase. Yeah, me neither. It is my aspiration, though. I know that's the way forward in spiritual life. John does that. I think, I humbly submit, this is why Jesus called John the greatest in the kingdom of God. He knew his role in God's kingdom. And when it came time to relinquish that role, he was thrilled to do it. He knew his place in God's economy. So therefore, he was the greatest. That's my thesis. I'm sticking with that until one of you changes my mind. So I want to go back to um, the quote from the beginning from Pastor Murray. Right? Remember when he says this? 
Humility is the only soil in which the grace is root, and the lack of it is sufficient explanation for every defect and failure. There's a, there's a real statement, too. So let's unpack what some of the scripture says about that, see if we can identify or validate Pastor Murray's outlook on this as well. So uh, James, in James 3, seems to, to get this. He picks up on this theme. You know, who is wise among you? Show it by your deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. Don't harbor bitter envy or selfish ambition in your hearts. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, I love that phrase, where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Is the lack of humility starting to... He seems to, James seems to think so. James doesn't pull any punches, as we all know. Pastor Stephen talked about him some weeks ago. Well, he's not content to leave it there. He goes on to say in James 4, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire and do not have. You, you covet and you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. There's Psalm 147 again. Seems to be a, a connection between the lack of humility and, and conflict, as, as Pastor points out. I think he read James. Now, I, you know how I like to show images to try to get the point across. So I, I googled conflict. Uh, this is what I came up with. I'm not sure what they're talking about. Maybe finance or where to spend Thanksgiving or something like that. Um, you laugh. You all know what I'm talking about. You all know what I'm talking about. Sorry? Laugh and agreement. Yes, laugh and agreement. Thank you. Whoops. Oh, my goodness. So now I'm going to pull up another quote from Murray, and this kind of plays on the end of his uh, previous quote. And this is about yielding to God as place. I know it's old language, and this is the, this is the kind of niv version of it, so imagine what the original language is. But basically, he's saying, then we realize our position with regard to God, and we consent to that. We consent that our lives will be surrendered to our Savior, to the one who called us and saved us. And he's going to live out our lives for what? through us. We're going to be the vessel. Make me a vessel, Lord, of your life and glory. Then we realize that humility is simply acknowledging the truth of his position as creature, as a created being and yielding to God his place. I think this brings it back around now to the, to the Hebrew mindset, something they understood very well, centuries of being discipled by the Holy One of Israel. Said, I am your creator. It's by my powerful right arm you're brought out of Egypt. There is no other, right? In the Hebrew prayer, I am the, I am the Lord your God. There is no other. It's in the Ten Commandments. So as we realize that and yielding to God his place, we start to, to feel that more profound humility. So to bring it back, this, the psalmist puts it very well. Um, they understood this just from what was witnessed in creation. Paul says in Romans 1, creation Look what you have done, Lord. Look what you have put in place. When I consider the power and the glory you display in the heavens, 
who am I? Who are we? That you're mindful of this. So personalize that now. I, I do. When I look at creation, what he has put in place, the majesty and glory of everything that he has created, I start to feel that, what the psalmist says. I echo it. Who am I, Lord? Who am I that you would bid call me Father? You know, who would I, who am I that you would come and bleed and suffer and die in order to make me your son? Who am I that you would lavish this love upon me, Lord God? Who am I? Who am I? This is yielding to God's place. I'd like to invite you all to a few moments just to join me in prayer, contemplation of this.
Praise God. Praise God. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Praise God. Uh, the Lord has uh, touched my, my heart deep this morning. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. The presence of the Lord is here. I know He's touching you too. Just let the Lord touch your heart. Just give up. Surrender. Only the Lord can do this. Only Jesus can do this in your life. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. I do confess that I have lived a life the wrong way. That may be It was my own way to live my life. And it was not the right way. My humility was not sincere humility. It was my own. I have read the same scriptures that were mentioned today. Specifically on one. That says wherever there, there is disorder... That is not where the right humility should be. And I'm guilty of that. I want to surrender my life again the right way. Giving the Lord the space for Him to do what only He can do in my life. And I know he's touching your heart too. Give the Lord space to do what only the Lord can do in your life. We are bombarded in these times on a lot of things. How to look good on a Zoom meeting. How to dress well. How to look great. But we forget to look inside. And only the Lord can look inside of us and see that we really need Him. Oh, dear God, thank you for your presence this morning. Thank you, dear Lord. The glory is yours. Only you can do this. And I want to surrender. In the name of Jesus. Praise be to God.
church again, I encourage you to stay as long as you need to. I want to just pray this scripture from Romans 15 over you. It says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God bless you, church.